Welcome to Veteran State of Mind. I'm your host, Garen Jones, and we have for you today, I was going to say a banging episode, which considering Grant talks about getting blown up a lot, is was not supposed to be a pun, but he's one of those guys, great guy, really kind of good, dry sense of humor. One of those people that's just like, just seems to be very understated guy. Um, he's been through so, been through so much stuff and just, you know, very understated about it all. It's, it's a, I really enjoyed today's podcast. We literally just, we just wrapped up and uh, could have, could have spoken to him for hours. Um, I just, just want to say thank you to everyone that's been supporting the podcast on the uh, Patreon. You can support the podcast for as little as a quid a month. If you're interested, link's down in the show notes. Just go and click on that. Also want to say a big thank you to Zulu Alpha Straps for sponsoring today's podcast. If you've got a watch, you need a strap for it. Not much good to you otherwise. So support a veteran-owned and veteran-operated company with Zulu Alpha Straps. They've got all kinds of patterns. Um, wearing myself. Wouldn't try and sell you anything that I didn't use myself unless the advertiser was paying enough. Get them there. Get them. It's not too early to start shopping for Christmas. So square yourself away. Zulu Alpha Strap or get one for somebody for Christmas. Why not? Only six months away. Um, and uh, yeah, I just want to, I'm just going to cut it there, guys, because this this was just so, so much fun, so much fun to, uh, to talk about. And I say fun in the sense of, you know what it's like if you're a veteran out there, you know, the worst times are the best times, and the, you know, the best times are the worst times. And um, I'm sure any of you listening that have been out on on tour or anything will uh, we'll know what I'm talking about there. So without further ado, Please give a very warm welcome to Mr. Grant Bayless. Grant, welcome to the podcast, mate. Good to have you on. Thank you very much, mate. Really nice to meet you and see you. Thanks for coming on last minute as well, mate. You broke the golden army rule of never volunteer. So thank you for that. It's all good. It's all good. For those who aren't familiar with you, mate, can you give us like a 10,000 foot view of your military career? It's all kind of like paling into a distant memory where I can't quite piece together anymore. It's all just like... Did you go Harrogate? No, mate. I, I was TA, wasn't I? I went through the... You was when you had... Well, I went to Harrogate for my sins. I was like 15 because my mum just did not know what to do with me. So just forced me into the army, really. I didn't want to fucking do it. And then I chose QRL, which is like the tank regiment, just because it, it was easy and it was drivery and it was less infantry stuff. But then uh, and I joined QRL straight away, which is Queen's Royal Lancers, main battle tanks. And then they, they re-rolled into formation recce, so then I quailed into CVRT full crewman. And then um, I did a bunch of tours with them. I did Herrick, Telic, Telic 4, Telic 9. Telic 4 was dismounted role in um, Abu Naji, rotating through Simic House and Pink Palace in Abu Naji camp. And then Telic 9 was brigade surveillance. Because between them two tours, I just kind of, um, you know when you find your keenness? I was in for three years. And I've just, I fucking hated it so much. And then, and then I found the keenness because there's like, because we had recce troop and stuff like that. And I've seen all these boys in recce troop and I was like, oh man, that, that looks, that looks pretty gnarly. And then, um, they started asking for volunteers for brigade surveillance. So I just jumped over and, um, did the old Kotak course and then joined the brigade surveillance company, which was like a, an amalgamation of different parts of the recce platoons from across the brigade. And they made a company, which, you know, which just did all the brigade surveillance in, um, in the theatre for that tour. Did that, and then I went to Herrick 7, um, got about four months into that, got blown up, broke my hand, and then came back, got better, did 473, special OP battery selection, and then rolled out to Herrick 9, and then, um, and then just kind of uh, bits and pieces in between, like courses and you know SFBC and 
all that kind of stuff really, mate. But you know, it was nothing, you know, 473 was probably the main, the main feature for me, really. That was the most interesting part of it. I mean, I think it's a quite, quite an intense, arduous course, which I found fucking horrendous. But, you know, I had to just get out of tank, you know, that point where you find your keenness, I just wanted to get away from tanks. I just wanted to get into like long range reconnaissance and stuff like that. So yeah, top down. You seem to have one of those knacks of landing on punchy tours. I don't know, man. Some people seem to have like Telic 4, Telic 9, um, the Herricks that you were on. Do you know what I mean? Like some people through no fault of their own, like you might have done a, some people might have had a, t- a quiet Telic 3 and a quiet Telic like 7 or something. And then, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. there, there's other people, other units that just seem to just land in all these spots, like little bullet magnets, really. Oh my God, yeah. I remember joining the Anglins and Herrick on um, Herrick 9. And I'm like, oh, your, what, what Herrick's yours? I was like, I was on Herrick 7. I went, oh, you just missed it. I was like, fucking hell. I mean, them, you know, them Anglins was just, that was probably, the Herrick 6 was probably the biggest, like, kind of, the hairiest tour from what I can remember. Anyone who came up from Herrick 6 was just like a completely different person. It was just a, an absolute nightmare of a tour. And then kind of, you got a bit, you got a bit of that on the end of Herrick, on the beginning of Herrick 7 and it, then it was a winter. But because I was BRS, I didn't really, you know, it wasn't as, as hairy as kind of like in the PBs and in Sangin and, you know, Babaje and down, down south and stuff. So it was, um, it was all right. Before we start getting into some of your tours, what what's your kind of opinion now? Like you're saying that you didn't really want to join the army as a 15 year old. What's your like opinion on the army recruiting at that age? Um, and like, how do you kind of look back on it now? Obviously, like you know, do you think is it a morally acceptable thing that we do in this country to to recruit at that age? Well, you're not forced. It's not a mobilization. You know, you volunteer for it still. But you know, I was I was just sat at home building fucking levels for Doom Two on PC. That's all I was doing. And working the post office, what what else was I going to do? I had no fucking plan. I had no fucking flag planted out into the future of ideas of what I wanted to do, like I do now. You know, so I just thought I just I just, I just let it take me, and I just got sucked into the slipstream of it. And then you know, you kind of find your footing. But I think it's necessary. You know, it's if you've got like nothing else to do, it's it's worth a shot. I mean, you haven't got to do the whole time. You haven't got to do twenty two years, but it's it's nece- it's necessary for discipline. It's necessary for conditioning your body. It's necessary for making friends and for socializing and stuff like that. Not that I, you know, I just couldn't, I couldn't drink like that anymore. The answer is yes. I think, I think it's a good idea. I think it's a good idea, but we haven't got, I don't think we've got like a kind of a really strong like recruitment drive in the UK. It's all kind of, you know, do you want to come into the army? It's not like there's not much of a recruiting kind of campaign going on. At least I don't see anyway, unless you're lesbian, gay, bi. You got to get in. We need you in. Get in. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, mate. So let, let's go to to tell it for then. How old were you, and how long had you been in the army for before you went out there? So this is two thousand four. Is it summer two thousand four? Two thousand four. Yeah, yeah. That was I was nineteen. Nineteen, mate. I just, just literally just got my first missus. I don't think I lost my virginity till I was fucking eighteen. Like, I just got my first missus, and then rolled out to tell it tell it for. I had no idea what a touring sound. I took nothing of like creature comes with me apart from a laptop. And then, um, it was, um, it really didn't, really didn't bother me. It was just more of an adventure, really. But, but, you know, after like four months, I absolutely fucking hated it. I hated it so much. Oh, God, yeah. It was soul destroying. What, what sharing up one portaloo with 14 men? One fucking, it's just like, um, you could just go in there and like the heat of summer, just eight 
just a colossal pile of human shit, like the size of the Triceratops shit in Jurassic Park. <laughs> and you go in there, mate, and they're just like, there's like pictures of blokes, misses in the top, and they dropped it down there, and they're just, they're just blasted in cuff and shit. And you're just like, oh, wait, what is going on? You know, 19. And then, um, did you fish them out? <laughs> Mate, I honestly, like, it got to, like, there was a, there was a little bit of that blue juice in there. Oh my God. And I, this, mate, I, mate, this is, I, I went in there once and I had a shit and I was watching, you know, when you look through your legs and you're just watching the impact and whatnot, watching the splash and the shit went in and it, and it landed and the blue stuff came back up and it went in my mouth, mate. Oh, oh my God. Mate, and then I, I ran, I kicked that fucking door over, mate, and I got under the alcohol gel dispenser, mate, and I just filled my mouth up with alcohol gel. Um, within within like three hours, mate, I was just fucking spraying out of my ass, mate. It was horrendous. Oh my god, mate! So, but you are now immune to all diseases. Well, I think once you've had DMV like five times, I think you kind of your body just like it's got it all out of its system. I don't even think I get AIDS anymore. I think I think I can just tolerate anything really. Definitely could tolerate COVID. <laughs> so, for those who are not familiar with Simic House and Telic Four, can you um, can you just give people a little spiel about what was kind of going on there at the time, the situation you were in? Oh man, well, it was just, well I was kind of rotating through it with um, PWRR. PWRR, were like, they they owned it. They were just like in Simic House, and they were just there all the fucking time. They rotated out um, some of their platoons, but I think snipers were in there for like all the time. There's that guy called Dan Mills. He wrote yeah. that book about it. Yeah, sniper one. Shout out Dan. That's the one. He was an alley bastard. They're all just fucking really cool alley blokes. All squared away. All looks the shit. All cool as fuck. All from the south to the touch. But, you know, I just remember, because we were because we were MBT, main battle tank, so we were had a couple of challenges out there. But they went into the city not very often. So because I was the dismounted troop, I rotated through there. And it was more of just kind of a going on guard and then going out on a few GDA patrols around, you know, around, you know, Basra, and then rotating through Pink Palace into there and going on guard on the, on the roofs up there. So it was all just more of a stagging on kind of stuff. But it was quite, it was quite freaky, you know, because it got, it got lit up a lot, you know. But I think all of the, um, all of the Telic 4 Simic House videos that you see, them, them cool as fuck, old school, grainy 720p videos that blokes are just, you know, knocking up. It's so cool. The very first tour videos. We were kind of, you know, sprinkled amongst all that. It was all right. It was cramped. It was a shit internet. You had to fucking book the internet like five days in advance, you know, to get to it. And, you know, you go on patrol and someone throws a fucking blast bomb and it goes between your legs and blows you through a shot window and, you know, stuff like that. That happened. Yeah, yeah. Someone threw like a blast. You know, when you think, you know, when you think back about it and you think, oh, that's just probably just a kid like making like a big cap bomb. Because someone threw it and I heard it bounce between my legs as, as I was taking a step and then it went off and I just fell through this window as it went off and then everything just scattered and then everything condensed back in and we all pulled back back to the front gate to Simic House and the ITM film crew was there and uh, they were filming it all but that was probably the most significant thing that happened to me on a actual patrol most of the um, you know the getting around sound was in the sangers and whatnot. Can you remember your first time getting shot at? Yeah um, not really no 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 it's like it's the contacts in like Iraq were like vastly different to the contacts in Afghan. There was much more freedom of movement. There was much more kind of it's less it's less urban um, in Afghan. Yeah, yeah. And I remember like I remember like, a lot a couple of sniper rounds coming over and you know the crack. But I don't know. It doesn't it didn't really phase me too much. 
no thing. I see, I did a lot of clay pigeon shooting when I was younger, so I was used to gunshots and whatnot. I was still, I was trapping from the age of like, fucking like eleven, what, so like, like sixteen. Rappers or that kind of trapping. No, then the clays off them traps, but I don't know. No, I, I can't. Right, a, I can't remember the person one being shot at, and two, it didn't bother me too much until we got to Afghan, and then it was just, it was absolutely fucking horrific. I think there's something about being in a sangha as well, isn't it? There's almost that like that warm sense of security. Yeah, you just sit down. Yeah, which is, but like even when you even when you've got your head and shoulders exposed, because you're, I don't know, you just feel like way less exposed, and you know your back's covered, which is a big thing. Yeah, yeah. you know, and I, you can climb that ladder and go get a cup of coffee, you know, when this when your time's up. But you know, but I don't know, fucking, although some of them sangas were so ropey, like one sandbag fucking deep and two sandbags high and. You're just like, what the fuck? And, you know, but, you know, nothing, nothing really came close to me apart from that blast bomb. So I got off quite lightly. All the really hairy stuff was happening, in, you know, as you know, in Herrick. I mean, what was yours like in, I mean, how, how noisy was fucking your Telex? Um, so the first one, Telex 9, for me, not noisy because I was just in Sangers and stuff at the Cobb, a lot of it. I mean, it did get shot at and stuff. Well, I say me personally, you know, patrols did. I, when I did, um, I did ATO and Wiz Force Protection for a bit, so obviously you're going out to IED, so there's oh, yeah, there stuff going on with those. But um, generally, like, 9 was quiet for me, but then obviously it wasn't quiet for a lot of other people. Um, what, you was on 9? Yeah, I was on 9, mate, and 10, yeah. Was you really? Oh, you fucking back to back to Oh, of course you did, yeah. I was on 9 as well. You probably crossed paths. Did you go to the pallets? No, well, yeah, and also we took out um, your lot. We took out sometimes you take out to drop on to jobs on the ground. So I'm just, oh, I was right. just, I was thinking about this. I was thinking, I wonder if you've ever been in the back of my snatch. Who, uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, what yeah. Because yeah, we used to get a lot of nice standing OPs and stuff like that. And then we used to get taken out by, you know, our F regiment and like some other people. But I don't, I don't fucking remember cat pages and whatnot. Right? That was us, mate. We used to take people out. Really? Yeah, because I'd be pissed off. I'd be like, can we stay out? You know, because I'm like, can we, can we, can we not just stay out? No. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, so it's, you know, and then Telic 10 as well, mate, to be honest. Like, like I was, I've said it before on the podcast, my job on Telic 10 was sit in the back of the warrior. Warrior stops, run out, kick a box, doesn't blow up, get back in the warrior. <laughs> cash back. So that Absolute was kind cash of, back. Yeah. yeah. I was listening to your audio a bit the other day. I heard, um, didn't, you, didn't you hit a fucking monster ID in one of your warriors? Yeah, I was in Afghan, that was. Was it really fucking hell? Yeah, I was lucky. I never got hit by any IDs in Iraq. I mean, the company did. The company got hit by a lot of them. But um, I never got hit by, by one personally. So. Do you feel safer in warriors or not? Would you rather be in or out? Not in Afghan. I felt safe in, safe in them in Iraq. They were great for Iraq. They were brilliant. They probably saved, they saved a lot of lives in Iraq. But uh, in Afghan, they were just death traps. Do you remember that, um, that EFP that went through the belly of a warrior and just fucking liquidated everyone in the back? Yeah, I do. And there was also one that went through Charlie. That's it, yeah. Do you remember that? They breached it. Fucking hell. Went through Charlie and took out the, yeah, took out the driver's legs, I think. I, think, I can't remember if I was on 9 or 10, but it, it was around that period. Um, I think it was 9. It must have been 9 because I remember that happening when I was there. Right, okay. Yeah, I'm yeah. hearing about it. EFPs were nasty. I don't think well, they weren't really around on on Telec Four with the EFPs. Oh no, no, no. That was like that's a fucking as an innovation that they made like years later. Now I don't, I don't even think there was many IDs on Telec Four. I don't, I don't remember hearing about them. There's a lot of IDS, right? A lot of fucking wanky bullshit IDS that just pissed you off and didn't really have any effect. But I think over the years they kind of zeroed in. They learned from the Iranians. Well, yeah, nine, nine, and ten. The palace got smashed, didn't it? Especially. Tell it turned by mortars. Oh my god, they were getting like 105 rockets through fucking people's, you know, fucking Coromex and stuff like that. Well, I had one go through mine, didn't I? You had one through your bed, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've, got it, I've got it in the house, mate. I've got half the rocket in the house. 
I saw it on your um, on that podcast you did with um with with Jacka. Shout out Jacka. Yeah, that's man. so fucking Ali. I got to shout out my old bossy in Fairburn for that because um, thinking while I was on R and R, he he went and asked the ATO if they could do a free because you know they can't come and collect all of it, don't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so people listening don't know what that is. Basically, the guys who do the bomb disposal after if there's a rocket hit or something, they just come and make sure that everything's made safe. Actually, I'll say this as well. One thing people don't know about ATO, one of the worst parts of the job for those guys, everybody knows about the dangerous part of the job for bomb disposal. But one of the things they don't know is that if a vehicle got hit in Iraq, one of the jobs that the ATO would have to do is to go out and make sure that everything was safe in that vehicle because obviously you've got grenades in there, you've got all kinds of ammunition in there, and we know part of the ATO's job sometimes was getting into vehicles and just crawling over bits of people to make sure that vehicle was safe. So. It's a bit, it's a, it's a side of bomb disposal or ATO work that a lot of people don't know about. And I think is, you know, I mean, those guys, obviously, like, they're rock stars and they should be. They just get the best jobs, don't they? Yeah, like, nothing like, nothing like, crawl, nothing like crawling over pieces of people to check. But, yeah, I mean, that's one of the jobs that they have to do. So, you know, I shout out to those guys, man. But, yeah, mate, so, like, let's, let's tell, like, four then, mate. You know, was there a part when you were out there? Did you ever wish that you were in the challenges, or were you quite happy with the dismounted role? Was it enjoyable? No, do you know, I, really, I never really kind of enjoyed tanks. I mean, I'm a call up, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a like, I know why I wear an engine. You know, I can I can fix stuff. You know, I've got motorbikes and stuff like that, and I, you know, I enjoy fixing and stuff. I thought I'd be into it, but I just fucking wasn't. The, the, the more the more I got trained up on Challenger, the more I wanted to be dismounted. You know, it just it's not because it was a death trap, or you know, or because you know I didn't want the protection. It's just I enjoyed the kind of more infantry aspect of the, like, of the army. So I did everything I can to, to get out of that. And that was one of the reasons for going into the brigade surveillance was to get out of, you know, mounted, mounted operations and then get on feet, you know, and, and start, start pushing out into more recce type and surveillance type roles, which, you know, which turned out to be like what, exactly what I wanted to do. So talk, so talk us through what those are then, mate. What are those kind of jobs that you're doing? Well, on BSC, on brigade surveillance, well, it was just kind of building target packs for SF really. I mean, so we were kind of sliding cameras up UGL barrels and then going out in war. You know, you'd bring a warrior up to our compound, we'd rig it out with cameras, and then we'd go out on a, you know, on any any kind of GDA patrol, and then we'd drive around and we'd make sure we passed this certain building. And then when we'd get to it, I'd t- you know, we'd say to the driver, just slow down a bit, mate. And then you know, we'd get all the footage we need. You know, the doors, the hinges, which way they opened, where the windows were, how thick the walls were, entry points into the street. You know where the back doors were, what was nearby, infiltration routes, ex, you know, exfil routes, stuff like that. You just get, you just build a big, nice photographic picture that you can take back to camp. You can put into a target pack, and then you can hand up to SF, you know, for because they want to do a strike on a particular, you know, particular person. This person's in that house. They want to know everything about the house, and so we give them every piece of photograph, you know, evidence that of that house that can help them, you know, gain entry quicker. So it was, it was stuff like that. And then there was, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of nice standing OPs going out at night trying to find, you know, hunting down IDF teams and stuff like that. Walking through that fucking landfill, mate. Oh, that mate. Was just, <laughs> what, mate? I must have some form of cancer coming. I think I've really, mate, that, that place. Tell people about that place, mate. Just fucking smoldering wasteland. Like something fetched from fucking Mad Max. Just like batteries and nappies and fruit and just human shit, probably bodies, metal, oil, just all rotten in one giant, you know, miles upon miles of cesspits. I don't think there's any kind of actual 
waste disposal system out there, is there? It's like it's like in Baghdad. They don't actually have anything power in the power plant. They just burn rubbish to create you know to create electricity. It's absolutely obscene. You know, if you think we got like you know we got to worry about carbon emissions over here, and it's like. Yeah, I try not to think about that place too much, mate. Because, like you said, you're like fucking hell. What did I breathe in going through that? I mean, because we used it, we used it a lot because it was never really ID'd that route, so we would go through, go through there all the time. Even the ID layers were like, "Fuck this, I'm not going there." I know, oh, yeah, they they, they they launched from the other side of it, and then, but we, you know, we we'd wander through that stuff for fucking hours and upon hours. The guy called Mitch, who just like we had to cross like this dirty kind of small river thing, and he and he fell in it and just sank and just drank a load of it and then oh. got back out mate I, honestly i you, you could just just by going in there and just breathing for an extended period of time would give you dysentery like i remember going in there spending like three hours on a nice standing op and then just coming back and just feeling like shit for two days it's just awful awful fucking stuff but yeah Remember them bogeys you used to get in Iraq where you just like, it was like a, like it was like you'd pull out this bogey and it'd be like the entire length of your nasal passage. Yeah, I miss it. Like a tamp, like bringing out a tampon. Yeah, it was. <laughs> the freaking absolutely rats. Like it was me- mental, mate. Like the amount of dust and shit like that. that oh my God. Them. I remember like someone saying that there's um like being in Baghdad for one day is the equivalent of smoking like 20 facts. Something fucking howling like that. But, it's just the nature of it, which is the, the fact that he had to burn all of your rubbish. Like, even we had to burn our rubbish. Even, like, Shiba had to burn all his rubbish, and, the, you know, the cob had to burn his rubbish, and fucking, you know, the whole city surrounding had to burn the rubbish. There's just like, this miasma of just rotten burning. That just must be what the end of the world's... It's just like, it's like a scene from the road. It'd be a great place to go and film. Fucking right, right. Well, other than, other than the fact that you all get cancer at the end of the... At the end just of the exploit the poverty of it all. Just... Well, that's what I try and do in my books, mate. Um, right, so um, the other thing I was going to say about, about Iraq then is, um, Telex, so Telex 4, you were there 2004. Then you went out to Telex 9, that was at 2006. So, like, when you did this surveillance course and everything, did you go back, you know there's, like, stages in your soldiering, and had you got a bit of swag about you by then? Like, did you feel a lot more confident in the job? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, totally, no. I just, like, no, just you just feel allier. You just feel fucking alley. You know, you go down to do coat out, you do a fucking intense range package, you start getting fitter, you start learning, you know, you know, doing, you know, covert OPs and, you know, like rural OPs and, you know, infills and covert CMVs and stuff like that, around all this camera equipment and huge lenses and, you know, your weapons change and, you know, teams get smaller, become more kind of, you know, I don't know, tighter, you just become tighter because you have like a, a skill you've all learned at the same time. And it was interesting learning. It was what you worked with all the recce boys as well. Cause I came from like a tank background. Then I started getting put in with all these guys from recce and snipers. And I just like, Oh, is it so fucking alley? They're taping up their own 96s. Just like, God, you know, it's just, it was just, it was just glorious to see. It was just glorious to work with like, cause I was with the Royal Green Jackets for a little while. And they're just like a different, they're just like a breed of like gruffy alleyness. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. They've got this kind of, they just don't give a, fuck and it's like their hierarchy doesn't give a fuck about it it's like they almost encourage it and i was like how do they get fucking away with it i forgot what the fucking question was now mate yeah me too mate <laughs> That's right. but uh, yeah the rifles definitely lean into it and i think it's i think it's awesome mate. i was definitely looking at them with with a lot of jealousy um at the time yeah them and my two you know and reg they were just so fun to look at so cool they're just that you know 
I, you know, I liked that. I liked that. But no, it was just it was just learning from like different different regiments, different you know platoons. Meeting a lot, meeting a lot of South Africans as well in RGJ, which was fucking, which was cool. That I never really met many South Africans in the URL, but then I met some of them, and they had this kind of there's like something distinct about them, something kind of like cool but hard. Yeah, nails. You know, oh yeah, just nails, bastards, mate. You know, I dig, I, I dug it, I dug it, and I, you know, I wanted to be like that, and it was. You know, you just you kind of just you know you, you just grow, but you know it was fascinating. It was just it was a fascinating thing to do after learning all about tanks. I mean, I yeah. think there's something just nails about going to serve in another country's military because you're basically saying I'm not here for patriotic reasons. I just want to scrap. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But that's all it was. It's all that's all it is. You know, to me now is just kind of something heroic about it. Some you know for me, but I know there's like there are heroes out there, but. To me, it's just it's just it's just an ex, it's just a well of an experience that can now be drawn upon for like you know for writing, writing and stuff like that. You know, I thought that's the best use for it. That's you know, but anyway, that's a tangent. And what what did you think about Iraq when you were there? Did you ever think about why are we here? Should we be here? Are we doing a good job? Did I fuck mate? Didn't think about anything like that. No, it didn't cross my mind. It was just a, it was just a blow. It was just a just another place to go. I don't think I don't know how many people were thinking about politics and the politics of it all, and the nature of us all being there and what it all meant and why we were doing it and the reasons for being there. It just, you know, no one really contested it. It was just kind of going to work. So I was going to say, um, did you did you like, did you want a punchy tour when you were out there? Did you want to be getting the rounds Fuck yeah. down? Yes, mate. Yes, mate. I wanted it so bad. I wanted a fucking scrap so bad, mate. Because was when I was in BSC, as you know, on Telic Nine. Like that's when the first kind of footage started coming through from Herrick, um, from Herrick Four, and you see the Marines and the BPT out in fucking singing, just getting rounds down. They're just just spraying rounds everywhere, and I'm there putting fucking tape over the top of my magazine so I don't lose a round. Right? Do you know what I mean? And it's just like, what the fuck am I doing here? Just back to back me onto Herrick Seven, please. You know. So how did you feel about that then? Because you know, you know yourself, mate, you were there. And I mean, a lot of people don't know this, but actually nine and 10 were more deadly, more British casualties than Afghan at the time. But if you asked anybody, they'd say Afghanistan was because they saw the footage, they saw all the rounds going down. So they're like, oh, well, that's where the fighting was. What was that like? I mean, you've kind of alluded to the frustration and stuff there, but it was, it was the IEDs, wasn't it? It was just, it was, it was mainly IEDs. And I thought, oh, okay, this is, so oh, there's two separate wars going on here. There's got this, this whole proper conventional war going on in Afghanistan where they're just literally using conventional tactics. And then we've got this fucking hybrid war where we have fixed ourselves in one location. And that's the problem with all this stuff. If you fix yourself into one location, then they just stand back and like, oh, okay, well, you can stay there. Okay. We'll just build a fucking minefield around you. And it just turned into that. It turned into, an, uh, you know, of, you know, of hopscotch trying to get around IEDs um, and stuff like that you know so, but I just yeah, there was kind of like you had this IED war going on in Iraq and then you had like this this conventional war going on in, in Afghanistan but then I was because I was surveillance I wasn't like in and amongst all of the um, kind of like like you was like having to tiptoe like around all that stuff like every fucking day driving over it you know because we were kind of like smaller, you know, smaller teams and we wandered out into like areas where no one really went. So we didn't have that kind of threat of like, you know, routine route use, you know, what's that, what's that bridge called? Is it called Green One? Um, Green 19. That's the one. Green 19. Well, no, Green 19, sorry, was, um, I wasn't a bridge. It was an intersection. That's the one. Green, Green 19 though was massively ID'd all the time. 
right? I remember that big time. Yeah, you probably you probably did quite a lot on there, didn't you? Yeah. Well, man, I was like one of the blokes used to go and do strikes, and I used to go up in the um in the Sea Kings with the sniper pod cameras, and I used to sit in the fucking helicopter for like six hours and just just scour the roof for activity and report down to the you know, to the ground commanders and stuff like that, and just so I was just looking through TI. Uh, for, for like long periods of time, like watching over that route. And you could just see the ID teams coming out and just planting shit and you do ping it and you call it. But I just remember seeing all that, the heat signature of the tanks going along, just thinking, fucking hell, mate, if them guys hit something, it's going to be a nightmare. And that, that was you. And that was the thing, though. It was like, you know, like the rules of engagement out there. You see those teams and then what? Do you know what I mean? Nothing. What are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, what are you going to do? You can't cut. Like, if I was Afghan, it would have been a fucking A10 on them. Right. But like us, it's like, all right, cool. We know there's an ID there. Now go drive past it. <laughs> mate, people fucking made, I mean, I, I know we cause a lot of destruction over there, you know, but it's like people don't give us any credit for like the constraint that we, you know, we used like, you know, collateral damage estimates, you know, when dropping ordnance and, you know, car 40 on, you know, just all these kind of procedures in place that would like, you know, just not let the average 18 year old who drinks 15 cans of monster a day with a GPMG just start spraying buildings with fucking... 600 belts which is like we there was kind of like there was a kind of set there was a real sense of constraint amongst that and that's like um a th- i think that's like a thing that people don't really give as much credit for like there was, an, there was a real element of constraint you know when we used things it had to be precise had to be clear and it had to be a clear target stuff like that you know but but again i wasn't there any invasion i don't know what they were fucking doing then if they were just you know yeah i mean look look at what the Yanks did in Fallujah. Like, we could have done that in Basra. You know, we could have gone house to house, dropping fucking close air, close air support and just going house to house. And, I mean, there's an argument, maybe that's what we should have done. But there wouldn't have been much of a city left at the end of it. Well, that's true, that's true. But then you'd be living with this kind of, look what you did. Kind of like what the Americans have to live with now. They have to live with that kind of, well, you just smash, you just do like fucking 10 round fire for effects on like just a town. It's like, we, we I don't, well, not from what, not from my experience. We didn't do stuff like that. So there was an element of constraint that we kind of we don't have to. I don't, I don't, I don't think we have to kind of carry this moral, this moral kind of burden around with us. Oh, we destroyed that place. I think we were much more considerate. You know, it looks bad, looks dangerous. There's a lot of explosion stuff, but there was an element of constraint with the British. But don't be wrong. I did fancy a bit of like how the Yanks are doing it because it looks like fucking good. Yeah, they got some Ali Tour videos, mate. Like, you know, it's like you might cry yourself to sleep, but then you can just, you know, watch those Ali Tour videos and be like, oh, yeah. you know, worth it. Yeah, you just roll over and you're like, actually, I can't be honest. <laughs> Noble listeners, you've listened to me speak for a long time about how much I love Combat Fuel, but at the end of the day, um, I'm talking out my ass when I talk about it. I can tell you how much I love it and I can tell you that it's delicious. But I can't tell you the science because I'm not Dr. Fauci. So today we have got Alex joining us, CEO of Combat Fuel. Alex, how are you doing, mate? I'm very, very good, thank you, buddy. Thanks for having us on again. You're welcome, brother. So tell me about Zinc Magnesium Ultra. So it is an incredible product. You've got things like a ZMA, which most people have heard of, which is a painted form of zinc and magnesium and vitamin B6. What we've done is amplified that. It, the levels we use are insane. The formulas that we use as well is better than any ZMA that you could find. The key bit that we use is we don't just use a plain zinc and a plain magnesium. We also go into the detail of what the elemental value is and the form that you get it in. There's a lot of science that goes into it, and I don't want to bore you too much for it, but if you take three capsules a night, half an hour before bed, 
I guarantee you will have the best night's sleep you've ever had. Especially guys that suffer with their mental health, be it PTSD or anything else, it will give you such a good deep REM and it doesn't stop nightmares, but it does give you that good deep quality sleep. Absolutely fantastic product. Do you also wake up with a massive... <laughs> Because when I've taken your Z, they made before. Yes, you do. (laughs) Yes, you do. So so there you go. Get a good night's sleep and uh, surprise your partner in the morning with a good time. Um, Mate, thanks for that. All right, let's get back to the podcast. Um, Right, mate, let's let's, let's talk about Afghan then, mate. Like, so you've, you've already kind of alluded to the differences between them then like so did you do then did you go straight from because I, I always make I, I always forget the numbers of the years on Tele, uh herrick sorry so did you go straight from telic nine to pretty much afghan then in terms of like back to back to but there was like um i can't remember how long it was between so at the end of telic nine four seven three battery we're saying right we're short for blokes to go to herrick seven and we need volunteers to come over and you know fill spots on herrick seven and I was like, oh, oh, fuck, yes, please. So, and I didn't have a missus at the time. So I was just like, yeah, let's just free range it. So they went, um, they said, yeah, right, you can come over. But you got, in one condition, you've got to do the course after. And I was like, yeah, that sounds good. You know, fancy a change. So yeah, they invited me over to do Herrick 7, providing I did 473 selection straight after. So I, I don't know how long it was between. I mean, they can't literally fly you from one theater to the other. So I think I went home for like maybe... I know I went home for about a month and a half because I got done for drink driving. Oh, that's a fucking... Mate, 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 I, all the money I saved on the Telic 9, mate, I bought a Ford Cougar V6 with me. With third-party fire and theft insurance, I went out, had a few beers. I had two beers, wrapped it around a lamppost, and then um, and then fucking some, 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 guard, some guard commander came down in a Land Rover and my car just smoldered on the side of the road. He was like, where are you from? I was like, I'm from... Um, Barn Barrett's gifts to lift, mate. He's like, yeah, get in the back. I was like, if the police come, don't tell them I'm here. And he was like, yeah, sound. So we drove up to the front gate just as the police were coming out. And they went, have you picked anyone up on the side of the road? Went, yeah, he's in the back. <laughs> mate, and I'd, mate, I picked up a whole ham. I had all this change in my pocket and I just remembered someone telling me, if you suck a coin, it takes the alcohol content out of your breath. So I put all of my change in my pocket, mate, <laughs> in my mouth and just sucked all these coins thinking, I can get away with it, I can deal with this. And they took me to the station, mate, and they were so sound. They're like, right, you've blown, you're over. Um, you know, we we know you smash your car, we know you've been drinking. Just you've got to just have drink loads of tea, and then um, and then you should be all right. I drank the tea, sat down, shot a shit with them. Hour later, did the test, still blew it, and they're like, "Ah, oh, you failed, mate." I'm like, so that took me out of the driving seat for a Herrick Seven. So I was just um, I was a gunner. Um, it's it's strange, it, you know, bit of a tangent, but it's like it's a strange because I got, I got like um, yeah, I didn't drive on that tour. I just I gunned. Because I lost my license. Right. So you what? So you were supposed to be driving? Uh, what were you? What was it? Wimmicks or Jackals? Or? Meant to be driving the. I was meant to be driving the Barry Commanders. Uh, Barrier, BSM's Pinsgower. But I ended up rotating across all you know all the fucking trucks, like all the pins, you know, Pinsgowers. You know, some of the troops when people went on, oh, no, I'll just I backfill their, you know, their turret. In terms of like back to back, like then tours, were, you know, were quite close together with a bit of drink driving in between. Is the answer to your question? You're like, right, if there's no one around here, there's no one around here to kill me. Let me try and do it myself. God, this is boring. I'm going to go <laughs> fucking stick myself in a lamppost. Um, so, mate, when you, when you got out to Afghan then, like, what was your, what was your kind of, um, what, what, what was the kind of ops that you were getting up to? 
was BRF, so just kind of roaming around doing recce by fire and probing and, you know, wrecking for, you know, for future ops and setting conditions, stuff like that. Um, but it was, it was kind of going into like, we'd go in and we'd, we'd take, a, you know, we'd take over a compound and we'd set this compound up and we'd stay there for a little while and we'd, you know, kind of dominate the area. Then we'd all get back on the wagons and we'd all move somewhere else once a new relief platoon came in and took that compound over. But a lot of it was rolling around in the, um, in the desert, skirting around, you know, things like Musakala and stuff like that. It's most mostly mounted, living in the deserts kind of stuff. But it was nice. It was well, it wasn't nice. It was fucking horrendous. But it was winter. I know blokes get like they the summer tour blokes. They get all the fighting and stuff like that, you know. And you get a fair bit of that in the winter as well. But there's nothing like that fucking cold, mate. In Wimmick, when you're driving through the night in fucking February in a Wimmick, and it's just. It's cold to crack stone to take your fucking life, mate. Blokes' hands are swollen up like boxing gloves and you just can't fucking... There's, there's not enough sleeping bags. People were like having to get fucking warm kits sent out because people just... We just didn't have enough fucking warm kit. Do you remember them snug pack softies with the hoods? Oh my God. Remember someone throwing them out and I was just like, oh my God, that is the best bit of kit I've ever fucking seen in my life. Again, I haven't really answered your question, mate, but it was a very... It was very, varied in ops, really. It was varied. You go into somewhere... You'd occupy this place for a little while, do GDAs, go out, do a bit of scrapping, come back, get on the trucks, go somewhere else, get retasked, go somewhere else. You know, we'd go out, we'd be away from Bastion for like a month and a half at a time. You come back and you'd, you'd have to, you know, it was unrecognizable. People just look like, like a group of fucking people that just walked out of a, you know, concentration camp in DPM, half DPM, half fucking Marpat, because they'd swapped fucking. It swapped deep. They'd swap their gear with the Americans, you know, because all their gear was like worn out and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, look, I that, that that tour for me was more kind of hitting IEDs, getting hit by suicide bombers and stuff like that. What, what was the suicide bomber? It was fucking nightmare. Do you remember Gresh? Yeah. Well, I mean, I never went there, but did you not? Oh yeah, man. So we were coming back from like I don't know where we're coming back from. We're doing some doing some recce. And we were coming back from, we had to go through Goresh at like midday. And it was like, everyone was just saying, yeah, this is bad. We should not be going through fucking Goresh at midday. And then we're waiting for clearance to go through. And then was like, we shouldn't do it. We shouldn't do it. And then they were like, yeah, we're going to go through. And we're like, all right. So we started going through. And then um, you're just driving through and you see like people tapping their watches and like kids mimicking RPGs and stuff like that. And you're like, oh, for fuck's sake, here it goes. And then we just drive, we would, we, you know, we're spaced out, driving through, bombing through at like 60 mile an hour as best we could. And then um, there was like this white car on the left on the, in the other lane. His engine was screaming like he was like driving it like 40 in second gear. And then he, um, he just snatched left and just turned straight for the vehicle in front of me. And then the driver was good and he kind of swerved out of the way. And this, this white car just made a beeline straight for my truck. And he's getting closer and closer. And like, I think it was like, this guy's trying to do a fucking insurance job. Like he wants to smash into us for a payout. And like, I get it. I fucking get it. And then you got close and the, you know, the, the light changed and you could see the, the glint through the window. You could see his face and it was just this mask of white terror. His mouth was wide open and his hands were on the steering wheel, both of them. And he just like came straight towards us and was like, right, shoot him, shoot him, fucking shoot him, shoot him. So we just brassed him up and then he just, window screen just whited out, you know, and then he came closer and he just rolled into us. Just as we tried to stop, he met our bumper and he just fucking blew up. And it, it all ripped all the back seats out of the car, filled with HME, and it just it just turned into a fucking fireball. Like, and we were in the center of it, and I was on top cover, driver and commander on the front. 
And I just, I just remember like there's this flash frame of just the engine block just going past my fucking head. And then it just like, I can't, but this is weird because like, because you're in the epicenter of it, you didn't like, you just got flash burns. You didn't get burnt, burnt. It's, always, it's a strange place to be like in the middle, the direct center of a fireball from a suicide bomber. And I, I, it blew me to the back of the wagon. I fell on everyone. And I got up and I had like this fucking like jelly that looked like someone had got a cup of coffee like and just slung it across my arm and across my mouth. And it was his, it, it was his brains. It must have been his brains, mate, because it was all up my arm, all across my dad and all in my mouth. And I swallowed a lump of it, mate. And I honestly thought, mate, that I had AIDS for like three months and it was fucking terrifying. I thought I had fucking AIDS, mate. I thought... Because all that's going through mind was like, oh shit, he's, he did that because he's got some incurable illness. Like, that's why he's done it. You just couldn't, I couldn't rationalize the kind of jihadi nature of it. The reason for doing it, I thought he had AIDS. So that's why I wanted to kill himself. That's kind of how I rationalized it. It's the, the dumbest fucking thing I've ever thought. You, you, are you an overthinker, mate? Oh my God. Because I don't super. think like you're some like, that's the kind of overthinking thing of like, most people are just like, oh, he just blew himself up. You're like, oh, why did he do that? He's got AIDS. That's know? fucking autism, mate. It's some some form of autism. I think I've got that's undiagnosed. It's I think the, it's the writer's autism. It is, mate. God, you want to work out the character's motivations? <laughs> yeah. But the, mate, that's fucking absolutely mental. Like, was that kind of common at the time? Suicide bombers. Um, I don't know. I can't remember. Like, I think there's there's there a bunch of them. They're few and far between, but they happened. But like, I did. I didn't think it would get that. I didn't think it would happen that close to me. Like. Like, you know, I'm two meters away, three meters away, just a car just turning inside out. And it was a fucking nightmare. Cause he hit our bumper, he blew in like our kind of our, um, our bumper, which then just bent in and everyone was just flapping. Like, uh, the people in the front, they got fucking, you know, splinters all across their face and their hands and stuff. They were pretty much good. And, um, the medic in the back was in shit state. Uh, he was fine, but he was mentally in shit state. So I, I just jumped down. I was quite numb to it, really. I, I don't know what that's all about. You know, I'm not really kind of introspectively thought about that, but I jumped down and we had to get the fucking vehicle out of there because it's just, you know, this is all just going to line up for a massive ambush, you know? So I was like, let's just, let's keep going forward, keep going forward. So they start, the, the driver started to push forward. And then as we, as we were driving forward, chunks of tire were just getting flicked out everywhere. And I was like, what the fuck is this? And I was just like, right, stop, stop, stop. And I was like studying the, the, the truck and the, the bumper had bent in and was just spiked into the tire. And every time he was driving, it was just ripping chunks out of the tire. So I was like, right, just, just stop a minute, stop a minute. Put a fucking handbrake on, put a handbrake on. And there was this Estonian EOD truck behind us. I was like, just come around here, come around here, give me a fucking tow truck, uh, your, your tow strap. So I made them go in front, grab their, um, tow, their tow strap, wrapped it around the bent bit of metal. I was like, put a handbrake on, EOD, just drive fucking forward. And they drove forward, snatched, and they bent the bumper back out, which freed the wheel. So I'm done that, and then we, then we, then, and the engine still worked, and then they towed us back, but our wheels were free, and that just fucked all our kit up and all our engine and all that shit. Good thinking, that mate. So you haven't got when that came at you, then there's no windscreen or anything on that now. No, nothing, mate. So you literally got mate. That's amazing that you all you all walked away from that. Oh, it's wild. It's, it's fucking. It's a freak. It's like everyone everyone who drove past us, they were just like you know when you you know rubbernecking as you drive past like a car accident. Just thinking, everyone must be fucking dead. And that's what people, you know, blokes were just saying at the back, they thought, oh my God, we just thought four blokes had just been wiped out there. It looked, he was in the middle of it, it looked like a fucking nuclear bomb. But it obviously was, it just had still sub armor. But it's weird, mate. It's weird. It's like, um, really thought about religion after that. Do you know what I mean? Right. You became religious or? 
fucking no. I just thought, how can someone do that? Why would they do that? Why would someone do that? And then you just kind of, I went down that fucking rabbit hole of religion, you know, of, you know, the motivation it would take to do something like that. It's just, it's pretty, pretty fucking wild, mate, that people are prepared to do stuff like that. It's the power of, you know, ideas, religious ideas and stuff. And that wasn't your only time getting blown up, was it? No, well, it was, we went up to Musakala. I'm fucking really worried about boring you and, you know, your audience here because I'm fucking, this is shit, mate. They, you've, had, you've had like fucking SBS blokes on. This is, this is what they want. I try and bring them inspirational stories. They tell me, guess, I want more stories about people getting blown up. So here we Jen, fucking hell, fair enough. <laughs> no, not really, mate. I'm just saying that. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, it's fucking war, mate, isn't it? It's what happens. Yeah, man. Well, you know, I just, I'm very conscious of like fucking people just being on this show and they've just like, they've just done insanely alley stuff like jumping out in into the North Sea at night and attaching themselves to submarines being pulled into fucking deep waters. And I'm just like, fucking, what am I? Well, mate, you've done some pretty alley fucking stuff. I've got most of it, mate. <laughs> that doesn't mean you haven't done it. <laughs> <laughs> so, to cut a long story short, we went up to Muscala to do the shaping up for Task Force Fury to come in and take over Muscala. Uh, I joined the BRF again after being stuck down fucking south for ages. Went up there and then we went up and we parked on this high ground for the night and uh, got out, like, got out of these little US Marine tents that we slept in. It was so fucking cold. And then um, we slept in we slept in this like plateau for the night, this rocky plateau. And then um, and we woke up in the morning, like literally we slept right next to the Wimmick, packed everything away, got in the Wimmick, turned it on, reversed two meters and fucking everything just went black. Like, and I, just, I was just ejected out the fucking turret. Landed on my fucking... Landed in a handstand position, which was fucking the most alliest thing I've ever done in my <laughs> life. And like completely without... Completely without, you know, consequence. I was just absolutely fine. And they were just like, fucking stop, stop. We were in a fucking minefield. And then um, we basically cleared the route for another vehicle to come down to extract like the driver. And the commander, Danny Kay, fucking commander, coolest motherfucker ever. It's just, he's enough South African dude. I, I fucking love that guy. He um, really fucked his legs. His legs were caught between like, the footwell and the dash and they got compressed because they hit, because we drove, we hit the mine on the left hand, front left hand wheel, compressed his fucking legs, massive compound fractures. We got him out, got him into the back of a Pinsgauer. I jumped into Pinsgauer along with uh, two other casualties. And then we drove another fucking 25 meters, hit another fucking anti-tank mine, blew us all out the fucking turrets again. And I remember I'm, it fucking blew me out and I landed in the crater. And I remember just curl up into a ball and I thought, that pins is in the fucking air and it's going to land on me in two minutes. Say fucking prayers. And um, it, it didn't land. I just kind of opened my eyes and it was just on its side on fire. And then Danny Kay was just like, he was hanging out the side, covered in all these, what they call them Thompson boxes, full of rations, buried in all his ammo because it was the BSM's truck with all the ammo and that. It was just on fire. Dragged him out of that. And then, because he was jacked on morphine, I had to get him away from there and I stood him up. I helped him stand up. I was carrying him. Not, not carrying him, but I kind of helping him walk. God, his legs were broken. And he was walking on broken legs and his legs were like bowing. And then, um, like, he kind of, we kind of got to a, like a safe distance and I turned around and there was like, there was, a, like, a, there was like a, what looked like a bin bag just sluttering like way out there, like maybe 50 meters away. And that was the driver. That was Daz Gardner. He, he um, the mine went off underneath his seat. He, so he took it all, and then he, I think he he died on the helicopter right back. But yeah, it was um pretty fucking pretty wild. I think two landmines in ten minutes. Fucking sh- will shake you up. What was that kind of moment like for you in terms of, you know, like you said after the last one, you started thinking about religion and stuff. What was because was this the first time that you'd lost someone that you served with? 
this couple of blokes off. I know that been that been you know that been killed, but um, that was like um, it was just quite shocking because it was it was like a lot. There's a lot to get, like hit two landmines in 10 minutes and just fucking, you get over the first one and you think, oh, I managed, I, get, I got around that, I saved that. Now I'm alive. And you hit another one, you're like, right, that's it. Uh, that is it. And whatever happens next, that is, it's fucking over. And then you got, I got, in, you know, got into the Mert, all the, all the casualties in there with Danny and Daz. And I'd watch, I watched them treating Daz like on the, um, on the, um, on the floor, trying to get tubes in him, trying to, you know, I remember looking at his eyes and they're trying to get some kind of life out of him. Um, and I, I couldn't fucking stomach it, man. I just, I turned away. I looked at the tailgate and I had my, my fucking Bergen got vape, you know, just, just blown to pieces. And all I had left was my iPod, my fucking headphones. So I just put my fucking headphones in, looked at the tailgate, man. And just, I listened to Citizen Arrays by Muse. And that was, um, I don't know, that was kind of a shock. Can you listen to that song now? Oh, yes, yeah, my favorite songs, yeah. It does, it's, not, it's not, it's not attached in any way, shape or form to that. No, it's, um, no, you can't, you, I don't know. I, I kind of distanced distance myself from it all. Just kind of, okay, well, that's the that's thing that happened. Let's take that thing, put it in a box, move it to this side. Okay, where are we going now? It's like, it kind of, it's probably not good to compartmentalize things like that, but, you know, it seems to be a way of you know, dealing with things, but it's fucking sad, mate, when blokes get, you know, blokes get fucking, you know, killed. Fuck, I just can't imagine, like, being, like, a parent. Do you know what I mean? If you, like, had kids, would you let them go in the army? Well, I mean, it'd be their choice, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't want them to now. Imagine now, like, like in Ukraine or something like that. That that escalates. I think, like, if it was the Second World War or something, you'd kind of be a bit more, but I just don't see any war now that we've been involved in where I'm like, yeah, that's a war that we need to be fighting. Do you know what it's I mean? Because you, you know there's just, like, there's just like a handful of people controlling it all. Two or three men just, like, just controlling our fucking future. It's like, I just, I'd never let them do that now. You know, retrospectively thinking about it, I think it's a fucking stupid. Yeah, I mean, I definitely kind of try and talk talk them out of it and stuff because I think there's other things that you can get that camaraderie with, like playing rugby and stuff like that. It's not it's not going to get to that same level. There's, a, you know, I, I tell this to lads when I get messages off young lads who haven't been able to get into the army because they've got, you know, they've got like a medical problem. They're like, oh, you know, I, I, I get it. I totally get that. I mean, feel you know, you and me are very fortunate that we didn't have medical conditions that meant that we couldn't serve. Um, but, you know, like, you can serve in different ways. It doesn't have to be carrying a rifle. Um, and you can find brothers in different ways. And you can, you know, there's there's other ways of going through. Because the thing is that draws you together is that shared hardship, isn't it? And you can get that by going mountaineering together. You can get it by playing rugby together. You can get you can go on the sash together. Go on a proper three-day sash. Um, I just want to ask one more little war question, mate, before we go on to a little, some things that you like your civilian life. But um, you mentioned you broke your hand. When was that? Was that a separate? That was a- oh, that was a no. That was a, that was after the first mine. I landed on. I landed in a handstand position. I just bent my fucking hand back. Oh, okay. So you didn't even know it was broken. No, until I lifted the stre- until I lifted the stretcher and it just just like electrocuted my hand. And I was like, fuck, what's that? So that was it. Yeah. So I, I used to be, I used to break dance, but now I can't do anything because my hand won't go far back you know but some nice pending arthritis for me come in <laughs> not service related <laughs> at all that's no, at, at all mate. you know getting superman through the air it just happens every day in civilian life doesn't it you get launched through the air and land on your hands you know mate it's like you just there was just like a split second where i just thought i don't know which way's up like i just couldn't figure out which way was up and then you just land yeah it's fucking wild wild stuff so when was it you decided to leave the army? 
2012. And what was the reasoning yeah. behind it? Oh man, I was I was geared up for selection. I was, went on to SFBC, failed the fucking swim test on that because it was absolutely gopping, and then um, but breeze all like the you know the hills side of things and that. But I really wanted to go on selection. I, that was really what I wanted to do next. And then Smudge, you know Alex Smith, mm-hmm. he was like, um, "Dude, you got to get out and do some CP. It's it's fucking. I'm killing it." I was like, "Oh my god, that sounds so good." So I just got out and uh, did some did CP for two years in a down in Baghdad. So yeah, so I got out in 2012 to do CP, which I don't regret because that's where I started reading more. So you weren't a big reader while you were in the army? Yeah, I was. Yeah, no, I started reading a lot after after Herrick 7. I started reading a lot. And then um, I went I went to back, you know, and CPs where, where I fucking really kind of like, right, everyone's just on Facebook here, just watching films all day long. Like, this, I need, uh, what am I doing after this? Because this is ludicrous. I can't just do this forever. This is fucking nine and three rotations with a missus at home. So I just, I read like fucking 200 books and just fucking, I'm just, just, I'm just that bored, that fucking bored. And that's where Ryan came in. So what, before we go on to the writing then, what was some of the, uh, what were the kind of books that you were reading? Well, I mean, everything, like philosophy, especially. A lot of Albert Camus, a lot of um, Haruki Murakumi, um, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, you know, Aldous Huxley, I tend to like, I used to, I'd read a bit of fiction then, but I was tend to read more non-fiction because I knew, because I knew, I knew fiction was not real and I wanted to be like, I wanted to know things that, that had actually happened. So I tend to I lean it towards non-fiction, which is ironic because now I just like, I'm, I'm really into kind of fiction. Um, but yeah, a lot of non-fiction stuff really, but I, I you know, Cormac McCarthy, you can know, things like Eruki Marikumi and Cormac, you know, um, fucking Things like that, like real fine pieces of literature, fictional literature, are just like they were just they just blew me away. And um, but yeah, anything I get my hands on, really, I wrote. I fucking found a book saying how to write a screenplay out there. Read that, started writing a screenplay, which was absolutely fucking gopping. Now I look at it. Um, but yeah, no, just a, a variety of things, really. Uh, I didn't read much war stuff. I don't read much war stuff. Don't know why. Don't know. Like uh, Bravo Two Zero was the last war book I read, and I did, there's just a moment in that. Like where Andy Manag's like talking about how he got through the interrogation. He's like, I just built a house in my head. I just like, you know, what happens to the body happens to the body. You know, it will heal. Uh, you know, you've got to build a house in your fucking mind and you've got to live in there for the duration and you can't let anyone in. I just remember, I just remember that thinking that is fucking it's fantastic way of dealing with things. That's a really interesting way of handling my hardship. It's so, it's so fucking weird now reading it in a way that's so... They're using words like Marmite Miner and Chutney Ferret and fucking stuff. <laughs> so where were you getting these 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 books? Like were you where were you getting these recommendations from? Like where were you finding these these books? Diplomats. Like? Diplomats, the ambassador and stuff like that. Like they'd all read all the diplomats would read books up at the bar and they would all have like this big lyre at the bar and I just I just fucking help myself. And then I bring back, you know, I bring books back from, you know, R and R or I buy them at fucking Istanbul Airport. And I was also studying with the Open University. I was studying um, um, the arts, past and present, and a bit of philosophy as well. Because I really wanted to get a degree in it. But it slowly dawned on me that having a fl- degree in philosophy is absolutely fucking useless. But yeah. Yeah, as are most degrees, really. For, you know. <laughs> Have you got a degree? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, she was really Andy on the gympie. <laughs> <laughs> um, history and politics. That's fucking alley. That makes sense, though. That makes sense. Didn't go at anything though, mate. Didn't didn't attend anything really. Yeah, Pretty but it gave much. you an excellent it gave you an excellent understanding of writing. 
Well, it would have if I fucking did anything, mate. I, I don't think I handed in anything before the deadline. I'd write everything. I'd let the deadline go past, and then I'd start writing it. And so, that, therefore, I never really got good at the... I got good at writing last minute, but um, I, I did make the most of my opportunity, really. It's something that, you know, with hindsight, I really, regret, really, really regret. I mean, if anyone's listening right now and you're at university, if you put in 20 solid hours a week, you'll get a lot out of it. But I just couldn't even be asked putting that much in. I, I wasted the opportunity, really. What, you regret, you regret not trying harder? Oh, yeah, 100%, mate. Um, it's the reason I'm a big fan of the GI Bill, because I think, like, the Americans, like, if you go, if you um, do your um, military service first, because I just, I didn't want to be there. I wanted to be in Iraq. So I was just, you know, I didn't want to be there. Um, but then, you know, now... I'd love the opportunity to go. I mean, I wouldn't do it now because I'm working, but like if, you know, you could have done, you know, like the GI Bill does where they pay your tuition, you get money towards your accommodation and everything. I would have had a totally different mindset towards it. It would have been like, because you do 20 hours, mate, you've still got loads of time to go to the piss. You've still got loads of time to do everything else. But at the time, you just become, like you were saying, mate, you watch DVDs, you fuck around on Facebook. You just, you waste so much time there. As a young man, without direction, you know, you, you you needed that. Like you were talking about Harrogate. You know, I didn't go to Harrogate, but I, I kind of like, you know, personally, I, I do think there's a little bit of a moral qualm, but at the end, but I also see the benefits of being given that structure at a young age because you go at uni, it's the first time away from home. Most of the lads don't really don't want to be there. I think most people are there because their parents want them to be there. And and you just, so you, and so you just fucking, you just fuck around, especially if you can afford to coast. You know, if you, if you can, if you can blag, then you'll you'll get through it, mate. So, I re- you know I, I I regret it really. Um, but yeah, anyway, enough about that. When did you start writing? Oh, um, you said well after the screenplay. You you got um you wrote a book, right? When was when was the book? No, I wrote, well I wrote a book in two thousand. I wrote a book in two thousand and f- my first attempt at writing a book in two thousand and fourteen. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was while you were doing CP or? Yeah, no, it was like literally. I wrote it about ISIS. Like ISIS were like twenty five miles from the fucking from the from the embassy. And uh, it was just, it just made that whole feeling. Could, mate, I don't know if you saw it. There's like, um, there's a video floating around called this clanging of the swords. Um, and it was basically like a fucking 20 minute murder montage released by ISIS. And it was just the most fucking brutal thing I've ever seen. Just a, just slow-mo executions in 4K of like shotguns to the fucking, I remember that someone passing that around saying, watch this, this is 25 miles away. And it just felt like the fucking dawn of the zombie apocalypse coming down. It felt like dawn of the fucking dead. And then so I just like I just I wrote a book about like what what it'd be like to you know to operate in that country if ISIS actually won. Um, yeah, it's your first you know your first book. It's fucking I had no guidance on it. I had no editorial team or anything like that. Self published, but I know I really wanted to write something. And you know boredom. So how 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 is writing for you then? Do you find it a cathartic exercise or is it you know what are your kind of aims with it? Well, it's kind of like I I can't not do it anymore. I've come too far. Like I've been doing it for like, I don't know, I'm nearly pushing nine years now. Like I really, it's just, I just really enjoy it. I really enjoy the process. You know, I really enjoy writing treatments. I really enjoy the research. And, you know, you, know, you don't really know, you know, it's amazing what you discover about yourself. I didn't know I was creative until like 2014. Like, you know, you, you find, oh, it turns out I can handle notes and, you know, write, you know, write stories and with high concepts and stuff like that. It's just, you know, it's a, it's a fun exercise, you know. I kind of, I really just want to, you know, I want, I, I would like to write books again, but I just, I, I just much prefer writing screenplays. It turns out I'm a better screenwriter than I'm a novelist. Um, 
at least at least what my manager says anyway. I just like I like reading screenplays and I like you know I think they're cool. I think they're very fucking cool. You know, you read something like Chris McQuarrie's Way of the Gun, and it's just like it's just so fucking slick, just slick, slick writing. You know, and I only arrived at that after going through the process of writing some really, really there's some books. I think four books, two of them published. One of them won a competition, and then one of them didn't even see the light of day. But that's all just an exercise. But I, I can't not do it. It's like an addiction. And what what is with the screen side of things? Um, you know, you like to get involved with more than just the writing, right? Yeah, I like I like to do, I like I like to do filmmaking as well. You know, I'm a, I worked in TV for a long time, like um as an as a sports analysis. So I'm I'm really you know proficient at cutting video very quickly, like building replays, and you know being you know careful with my cuts and noticing frames out of place and you know putting together video very quickly you know i'm, I'm you know i learned how to do video editing very fast in tv because it didn't know what you, you watch rugby didn't you you know you know using yeah that's fucking the dumbest fucking question i've asked this whole thing <laughs> fucking hell mate do, do you know you know in the halftime analysis when you see like the little circles around yeah. players and that so yeah. i put them on right so but you know but i don't know anything about rugby i don't know anything about football but i can run the analysis side of things how did you get into that? Someone offered me a job. Um, a guy I was working with, his brother-in-law, ran a, a, a sports analysis company, which, you know, used, there's only like six of us in the country doing it. And it was just like, it's called Piero. Um, so he trained me up on this use of Piero, and then he trained me up on EVS, which is what they use in TV to cut all the feeds. So when you're watching TV, all that's, all that, everything you're watching is being um, sent to your screen via an EVS which is then controlled by a vision, mon- a vision mixer. So an EVS is basically a video, edi- video editing tool where you have like six or seven feeds coming in the back and you can just swap between them very quickly, chop bits of footage out, put them in playlists. Uh, you know, it's like, it's like a really efficient way of cutting video without a mouse. You know, so that was um, it's a hard, tricky skill to learn, especially when you know, you're just thrown into a fucking live gallery and you've got to fucking chop up the replays for the fucking halftime. It's just, do you think the military, like, because obviously that sounds like there's a lot of pressure attached. Do you think, like, the time in the military is, is what kind of gave you that with ability to, like, withstand, you know, pressure and that kind of thing? No, I don't think anyone, no, because no, people out there that do it and they just take it. It's like, um, no, it was just, it was, it was fucking sweaty stuff. You know, really fucking sweaty stuff, mate. You know, you got a director looking over you and he's like, mate, where's the, re- you know, wh- where's the analysis? Where's the analysis? What are you fucking doing over there? And you're just sweating. It's live there and you're like, do you get a buzz off it? It's good when it goes out and it looks clean. When you push out some clean content, you're like, fuck yeah. That analysis is good and, you know, fucking millions of people watching it, it looks pretty cool. But, you know, no one knows you. But, no, that, that, sorry, to, you know, video editing, yes, I enjoy. Writing, I enjoy more. You know, the two kind of merge a little bit, but, you know, the writing thing is what, you know, I want to pursue more. Well, I did have a director attached to my fucking script, one of my scripts, but he fucked us around so hard, mate. It was a nightmare. That was the whole thing. Kind of me and Steve Pressfield were talking about this the other day. It's one of those like, like, you know, you get that director attached and there's like that euphoric moment. Then it all falls mm. apart. You got to build it again. You got to build it yeah, again. Yeah, yeah. Like Fucking right. It's that, like you just need that kind of um, fortitude and determination to keep, you know, to keep going on it. Like, yeah, you know, that's why you got. I mean, like, that's why you got. That's why you got to love it. That's why you got to really. That's why you got to enjoy the craft more than the actual product itself. Mate, one hundred percent. If you like, you know, like you've got to look at it from the point of view of would I do this if there was no money attached to it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. If you're, if you're in the trenches writing like fucking, then for free, like literally I am, like 
you're still doing it nine years later. It's it's more about the craft than it is about, you know, fucking getting paid for it. You know, your writing is fantastic. Like Brothers in Arms is just it's just so well written. It's just so cool and raw and it's just I don't think this is what that's what's like you know, just I'm gonna suck it for a little for a quick second, but like the fact that you can write and you could write before the military is interesting. Like, because you did a, you know, you did a degree and then you went into the military, which shows you had the, you had the background education, better write properly and had the interesting writing. And then you, you carry, you had all them skills inside that experience. And it's just allowed you to write in such a kind of a unique way, you know, cause it's one thing being in the army and getting out and writing a book and we'll have someone ghost write it, but it's different being a writer like you and then just fucking having all that experience and writing about it. Cause you just write with a different kind of rawness, a different, a different prose. And it's just, yeah, I don't think I, I don't think I could write, mate. Honestly, like those e- essays and stuff. It's like you know, you're trying to answer a question, and I was just like, you got to do say a fifteen hundred word essay, and I'd know what the answer is, and then I just use fluff. I would just be literally opening books at random, literally, because I started doing the same as you, mate. I started with screenplays, and then like like you had, it got to a couple of points where I was like, oh, here we go, and then the project fell apart. Oh, here we go, and then the project fell apart. So I was like, fuck this, like, I need something to show for my efforts here, so I'm going to start doing books. So, you know, and I think there's something to be said for, like, if you want rawness and stuff, there's something to be said about not knowing what you're doing, because, like, that can actually, once you start knowing what you're doing now, you're like, oh, no, I need to have this bit, this beat needs to be in this place, and this has got, like, whereas when you're first doing it, that's kind of, like, the most free you'll ever be. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, now, yeah. You're, now you're like, oh, do I need to add another female character in or do I exactly. need to have, like, because like, you're like, oh, how do I, because it's like your job. So you're like, how do I, like, how do I make this the most um, uh, kind of sellable, you know, because yeah, yeah. if you yeah, don't yeah. get any money for it, it's like, yeah, you'd still want to do it. But at the end of the day, like, it's your job. So if you don't get exactly. any money, you're fucked. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, yeah. So but it's the a, boundaries it's a, of creativity, just the boundaries of creativity kind of just like, they kind of move in, don't they, and narrow. As you become aware of like things like budget and art <laughs> yes. you know, and stuff like that, you're like, oh, I can't just write like that anymore. It's like, for fuck's sake. First screenplay I wrote, mate, had fucking Navy ships in there, jets in there. <laughs> and then the book's like, I'm like, and I, because I didn't realize that like that would be a problem, but you're a first time writer. No one's taking a hundred million dollar script exactly. off Exactly. You. Yeah, do you know what I mean? It's insane. You know, so and then so then you're like, all oh, right, so I need to have like four characters, limited locations, no destruct, no navy ships, no no jets, no parachuting. Yeah, you know, you need to like no I can make this. Yeah, exactly. No rain. No no no. Yeah, no 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 rain. No like fucking no setting scenes in the Bellagio in Las Vegas yeah. or anything like that. You know, you're like yeah. All right, farmhouse characters, couple of characters. Um, no, I say, mate, mate, we've, uh, mate, unfortunately, we have run out of time, which sucks, mate, because I really enjoyed talking about this stuff, mate, which I guess we'll have to do over a pint instead. Um, yeah, man, that'd be cool. But, mate, is there anything you want to say to people, um, nice words, <laughs> to, um, b- before you leave, um, anything about where they can find you, um, where they can come and check out your work, anything like that, mate? Yeah, just check me out on Instagram, really. It's my, I don't really use too much anything else apart from Instagram. Um, no, yeah, just a uh, Grant, Grant Bayless at um, uh, Instagram, really. Tom, come say hello. I will stick that down in the show notes, mate. I mean, I got a couple of books out there, but like they're just like I've discontinued one of them. One of them's like almost for free now. So f- fucking fill your boots. But that's like my early write, and I don't really want to draw any attention to that. You know, it's good. You know, you're self, you know, fucking self-published work. You're like, oh my god. 
Well, I don't think like I do think like there's there's good self-published work out there, but I I know what you mean, mate, because it's like you keep getting. It's like if you were an NFL player in his prime, you wouldn't want people to go and watch a video of you playing high school football, would you? Right. Yeah. Yeah. You need you need people to tell you what's wrong with your work, and you don't do that. You don't get that when you self-publish. Like, I've got one book out. You know, if you can read anything in mind, read Witchcraft Forty Seven, which is just a very short novella about a single contact in Afghan. You know about how to conduct yourself and how to you know squeak it away and stuff like that. It's like a little check. That's the only one I want to pimp is Witchcraft Forty Seven. I know I've got I've got a little you know I've got a short film proof of concept coming out. Um, thing by and check that out. Ali, Ali, mate. I said Ali call sign as well. Witchcraft Forty Seven like that. Was that your call sign? Was it? Yeah, yeah. That's Ali, mate. All <laughs> right, bro. Well, thanks so much for coming on today, mate. Really enjoyed. Any time, man. Oh, thanks it, for having me. Really, thanks for having me, and um, thanks for your team for like some lovely email and invitation. And it's really good speaking, man. You're, you're fucking, you you are just the coolest motherfucker. I think you're so cool. Thanks, bro. Peter, you have to cut that bit out. <laughs> yeah, no. Thanks, thanks very much, mate. Really, really appreciate your time, mate. We'll have to try and catch up in person sometime. Sounds good, All right, mate. Well, thanks, Chase Grant and noble listeners. We will catch you next time, and we love you, bye.